we are coming to the end of our Life of David series. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. The Apostle James reminds us that life is like a vapor. It's like a mist that's here one second and it's gone the next. Life is fleeting. Anne Lamott says, a hundred years from now, all new people. Think about that for a second. A hundred years from now, all new people. And so for the past several weeks, we've been journeying through the life of David together. And when we began this series, we found David in a field tending sheep. He was just a teenager. But now several chapters later in our text, much like life, time has flown by and here we find David at the end of life. David is now around 70 years old and he's nearing his end. And so this is our last study of the life of David. My, my hope and my trust is that as, as we've journeyed through this series, the Holy Spirit has been working in your heart the way he's been working in mine. This has been an impactful journey, hasn't it? And so as we dive in one last time, I would like to pause and just to pray for God to help us one more time to, to hear his truth as we look at the life of David. Let's pray. God, as we come now to your word yet again, as we look at your servant David's life and specifically his, his end days this morning, Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear what you would have to say to us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come into these moments and that you would breathe over these pages of your word and that you would convict and encourage and console that, God, you would grant the gift of faith and hope in the promise of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we, as we conclude our series, we come to David's last words. Verse 1 tells us that these are the last words of David. Now, this doesn't literally mean that these are the very last words that David ever spoke. And we know that because in 1 Kings, we see David speaking a little more. But what, what this does mean is that this is David's kind of final pronouncement. If you remember back in the book of Genesis, as Jacob comes to the end of his life, he brings his his sons into the room, and one by one, Jacob issues a blessing and a pronouncement over each of his sons. It's kind of his last words. Or maybe you remember Moses in Exodus, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 33, as Moses has gathered this second generation of Israelites who are in the plains of Moab, about to cross the Jordan and go into Canaan, and he gives them some last words, and so he speaks a blessing over each of the 12 tribes. Well, David is doing something similar here. This is sort of his last declaration. In fact, that's what my version says in verse one, that this is the declaration of David. That word declaration literally means oracle. God has given David a final revelation. He's given David a, a prophecy. And so we're gonna see that in just a second, that. Uh, specifically in verses three and four, David is going to prophesy. I bet you might know or be able to guess who that's about. 
Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, We'll get there in a minute. But as we unpack David's last words, here's what I don't, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want us to miss the personal nature of these words. I think it would be easy to go, this is a pronouncement and it sounds formal. It's an oracle. And to think that David is removed from these words. Let's not do that. I think, I think these words are intimate and poetic and I think they're reflective. I think in some sense, these are David's words from his deathbed. This is a deathbed speech in some sense. Here we find David's end. And at the end of his life, he's reflecting. He's regretting. And he's looking for relief. And I want us to see those three things one at a time. So let's consider David's reflections, David's regrets, and David's relief. Let's first look at his reflections. Before David gets to his actual prophecy, verses 1 and 2 give us a sort of biography of David. Notice it with me. The declaration of David, son of Jesse. The declaration of the man raised on high. The one anointed by the God of Jacob the most delightful of Israel's songs. There's a sense here in which David is recounting his life. If someone were to ask, who is David? This would be a pretty good summary. He's the son of Jesse. We first meet David in 1 Samuel 15. He was one of Jesse's eight sons, the youngest of his sons, in fact, a teenage tender of sheep. And by the look of things, we saw this in our very first week of our series, He was a nobody from the tribe of Judah in Bethlehem. In fact, David was so forgettable that his dad didn't even invite him to the ceremony when the prophet Samuel showed up and said, hey, I'm gonna choose a king from one of your sons. Jesse just left David out in the field. But as we saw, the Lord chose David to be the next king and Samuel anointed him. And in the following years of David's life, he went from this obscure shepherd boy to a mighty warrior who fought giants and who conquered Philistine armies. God raised him up on high and gave him popularity and made him great. And eventually he became the king of Judah from a herdsman to his royal highness. And under David's leadership, the kingdoms of Judah and and Israel were united and they grew strong And David waged successful military campaigns. He moved the capital to Jerusalem. He brought the ark there. David was Israel's greatest leader, the anointed of Jacob. Unless we forget, as Zach reminded us earlier, he was was also Israel's greatest poet. Of the 150 Psalms in the Psalter, 73 of them are attributed to David. The literal translation of the last line of verse 1 is the sweet psalmist of Israel. Walter Payton had a nickname, running back from Mississippi, right? His nickname was Sweetness. And David was called the sweet psalmist. That's a pretty cool nickname. My nickname as a a boy was Double A, because my first name and my last name were the same letter, Double A. The sweet psalmist is better. That's just a better nickname. 
And as David nears the end, he reflects over his life. He remembers his childhood. He remembers his battles with bears and lions as a shepherd boy. He remembers his anointing. He remembers his battle with Goliath, his rise to popularity. He remembers his coronation. He remembers bringing back the ark to Jerusalem and dancing before the Lord in holy indignity. He, he remembers his life. He had an amazing life. It was full of adventure. And David remembers his story. It's, church, it's a good thing to remember your story, to reflect on your story, to remember your origin story. David was the son of Jesse of the tribe of Judah, from the town of Bethlehem. Acts 17, 26 reminds us that God establishes our birthplace and the boundaries of our habitation. That who you were born to and where you grew up is no accident that the Lord placed you where he wanted you to shape you into who you were to become. David wouldn't be David without big brothers and Jesse as a father, without growing up in Bethlehem, without tending sheep. I think about my life. I'm born to Tony and Sherry, brother to Ben and Clay. And I wouldn't be me without my childhood in Colorado Springs or without a divorce at age 13 that led me to Mississippi. I wouldn't be me without meeting Melanie at Mississippi State, without all of the things that happened in my life to bring me to where I am. It's a good thing, church, to remember your story and to see the hand of God in it, to see how in every event, how in every circumstance, how in every person, through the people that God placed in your path, God is the sovereign orchestrator of your life, providentially at work to mold you and to make you into who you were to become. Remember your origin story. Remember your salvation story. David was a nobody living in obscurity and the Lord sought him out and chose him as king and anointed him. And if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a Christ follower this morning, that's your story too. You were a nobody living in obscurity and God sought you out and revealed his son to you and made you his child. It's a good thing to remember how God found you and how God saved you and how he set his love on you and showed you grace and opened your eyes up to the gospel and made you his child. That's a good thing to remember. It's a good thing to reflect on your nickname. What do you want to be said about you at the end of your life? What do you want to be remembered for? Perhaps you've heard of the exercise of writing your own obituary. Might sound a little morbid. I actually think it's a worthwhile consideration to think what do I want said of me at the end? Because see what that does, church, is it, is it reframes what you're living for. It reframes what you're devoting your time and your energy toward becoming. It's a good thing to spend some time reflecting on that. 
Here is David reflecting on his life. The Lord has blessed his life immensely. He's used David powerfully. And perhaps David's mind is drawn to one of the songs that he had written. My soul bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits. David reflects. But beside David's memories, beside his experiences and accomplishments, David also has some regrets. As David reflects back on his life, it's not all smiles. There's also some sorrow for David. And so let's notice, secondly, David's regrets. We actually find it in verse five, but to understand it, let's, let's pick up in verse three. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, the one who rules the people with justice, who rules in the fear of God, is like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless morning. The glisten of rain on sprouting grass. Here is David's actual prophecy. David is imagining a king, the kind of king that brings blessing upon a people. A king who rules in righteousness, whose actions are guided by reverential awe for God. His leadership is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless day. It's like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. Have you ever experienced the fresh light of the sun peeking up over the horizon early on a cloudless morning? Well, that's a beautiful sight. Have you ever seen a field of grass glistening in the sun right after the rain? David says that kind of beauty is what it's like to be led by a king who embodies justice and holiness. That's what God's kingdom is like. It's beautiful and it's life-giving and it's refreshing and it's warm. God's kingdom is going to be beautiful and soul-nourishing and delightful. And, And if when you think of heaven, you don't desperately long for it with every fiber in you, then you haven't yet thought deeply enough about it. Because it's gonna be this place of security and refreshment and cleanness without any fear of danger or or, or capitulation or abuse or manipulation or extortion. There's gonna be no worries. There's gonna be no insecurity, no fear of attack. It will be a place of righteousness and holiness and it will be so because the right king is on the throne ruling and all will be well and everything will be in place. And as David reflects on this picture of a king and a kingdom, he can't help but reflect on himself. Verse five is a little obscure in the CSB translation. Is it not true my house is with God? I think the New King James gets us a little clearer, a little closer. It puts it this way. Although my house is not so with God. 
although my house is not so with God. As David reflects on the kind of king that truly blesses a people, he has to admit it's not so with my house. David wasn't the king who ushered in warmth and refreshment. He wasn't the morning sun. He wasn't the fresh rain. Despite all his great memories and accomplishments, David can't help but also see his failures. Because he wasn't only a warrior and a poet, he was also an adulterer and a murderer whose sins led to disarray in his family and disarray in the kingdom. Charles Spurgeon said of David, though a mighty warrior, a conqueror of giants, a king over a great nation, yet he had his all those. Although my house is not so with God. I wonder this morning if you have any all those in your story. Let's situate ourselves here with David. And let's see him at the end of his life staring over his mistakes. Unable to hide from them. And let's learn from this. Let me ask this question. If nothing changes in the way you are currently living, what will be your deathbed regrets? If nothing changes in the way that you're currently living, what will be your deathbed regrets? Put more simply, what needs to change? It's not too late to change. Don't you know that David would do some things differently if he had the chance? Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. You look at your life and you're like, I'm... I'm like David, I'm this mixed mess of wonderful memories and woeful failures. I mean, Leonard Cohen got it right when he described his life as a broken hallelujah. David's life was a broken hallelujah. I can relate to that. And as David wrestles with this tension, he's faced with a question. What is my hope in death? Here he is at the end of his life, reflecting and regretting. And here's the question, what is my hope in death? And in light of the broken hallelujah that is David's life, what's gonna comfort him as death draws near? How can David be certain that everything is going to work out okay for him? The Heidelberg Catechism asks this question, what is our only comfort in life and in death? That is a good question. I can remember several years ago, it was a Tuesday night. I think Melanie was preparing dinner. There was a knock at our door. We weren't expecting guests. But two of them were standing outside of our door. They were 
some missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I invited them in and we began to dialogue and over the next eight weeks, they came to my house every Tuesday evening. And we would have discussions. And really the crux of the discussion was, was this issue. Because the mantra that they kept conveying to me was that we believe in grace after all we can do. That, that security is rooted in doing all that we can do in this life and God will make up for what's left. And I picked out the younger of those two missionaries and I picked on him. His name was Eric. And I said, Eric, when you put your head on the pillow tonight, how do you know that you've done enough? How do you know it's enough? There was this pregnant pause. And he looked back at me and he said, I don't know. And I said, that's because your faith is in yourself. Your faith is in your works, Eric. Your faith is in you. And here's the question David's facing at the end of his life. Had he done enough or were his failures too much? How could he know that everything was going to be okay? And what David gives us here is an answer that shows us that we can have relief, that we can have assurance at the end of life. David doesn't look to himself. There's no comfort in looking within yourself. Even as he laments his own failures, he doesn't live there. Instead, he looks to the promise of God. Look at verse five. Is it not true my house is with God? For he has established a permanent covenant with me, ordered and secure in every detail. And will he not bring about my whole salvation and my every desire? Here is David's confidence. It's in the promise of God. He trusts in God's faithfulness. God will bring about my salvation. And of course, he's referencing chapter 7, where God entered into covenant with David and promised him an enduring kingdom and a king who would rule forever. And now David's picture of this king of righteousness and holiness makes perfect sense. It's a prophecy of a coming king who will usher in this kingdom and who will reign forever. And David puts his faith in the assurance of this coming king who will rule over him and reign over him forever. At the end of your life, you have two options. You can either trust in yourself or you can trust in God's promised king. Only one of them will bring any true and lasting comfort to your life. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The Apostle John would describe Jesus and his arriving as a light 
dawning in the darkness. Jesus would describe himself as the living water that is able to quench your soul's thirst. He, he is the king that's like the rain on the grass that brings refreshment. He is the king that's like the light of the dawn that shines brightly. Jesus is the king that David foresaw who comes to usher in God's kingdom and blessing. And, and, and the promise of this passage is that if, like David, you cling to him by faith, then you can have confidence in death. And the good news for David and the good news for you and for me is that in Christ, God will bring about our whole salvation and our every desire. Did you catch that in verse 5? Will he not bring about my whole salvation and my every desire? God doesn't halfway save things. He completes what he starts. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He will satisfy your soul's longings. He will quench every desire. All of your needs, all of your longings are met in Jesus, church. Every single one of them. And Jesus, who did come to begin this kingdom, will come to consummate this kingdom. And on that day, verses six and seven will also be fulfilled. But all the wicked are like thorns raked aside. They can never be picked up by hand. The man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear. They will be completely burned up on the spot. Now maybe you read that and that doesn't sound like good news to you. Maybe that sounds harsh. God is gonna consume the wicked. But here's what this means. It means that ultimately God will eradicate every thorn in the kingdom. Think all the way back with me to Genesis chapter 3. As Adam and Eve fall into sin and God speaks to them the curses of sin, one of the curses is thorns and thistles. Sin is like a cancer that spread over the creation and broke it, just shattered it, infected it. Thorns and thistles manifest in every direction. And here the promise is God is going to take away every single thorn. Every remnant of sin will be dealt with. Every thorn of evil will be consumed. The evil in your life that you hate and that you can't get rid of. The evildoers who wreak havoc in your life. All the societal ills will one day be gone. That's the promise of this verse. God won't just save us He'll heal the world of its thorns. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Jesus declares, behold, I am making all things new. See, these, these thorns that we can't touch without a rod of iron, the things that we can't uproot, the things that we can't fix, God says, I will deal with those in due time. Under Jesus' kingship and in his consummated kingdom, 
David's adultery, David's murder, David's neglect of his house will not even be a lingering memory that haunts him. He'll be gone. Friend, in Christ, the deepest regrets in your heart will one day be forgotten. They'll evaporate in the presence of Jesus. The worst evils in our world will be consumed. Sin and death will not win. There is a day coming when even the fleeting thought of disobedience will be impossible. Sin will not only be forgiven, it'll be forgotten. It will not be possible to sin. And we will reign with this king and in this kingdom forever. And so we'd say to that, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we see so clearly in the life of David and we see so clearly in our own lives that the protagonist in David's story is not David. It's you. And the hero of our story is not us. It is you. And that is good news. This morning, we rejoice, God, in how you work in the lives of broken hallelujahs like David. How you work in our lives, God. Grace that is greater than all our sin. You are the sovereign one over our lives. And even what's meant for evil, you turn it for good. You work all things together for good. To those who love you and have been called according to your purpose. God, we rejoice in that reality this morning. We rejoice in King Jesus, the one who is refreshing and bright like the sun. And we long for him to more fully come into our lives until, Jesus, you come truly and physically to usher in your kingdom. We thank you for that promise, and we pray this in your name. Amen.